Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. As of August 2nd, we have resumed in-person worship services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are committed to the health and safety of our families and will continue to offer our simultaneous live stream at youtube.com slash area 10 faith community. We hope you'll join us at the Bird Theater again soon, but in the meantime, we're providing the best possible online experience we can for you. Now, on to this week's message. So how many of you would consider yourselves to be pretty big Christmas nerds, right? Yeah, you can always hear them. I mean, you're, you're definitely going to hear them. I mean, like, you, you, you get into eggnog, you, you, you put on the music probably way too early, like you were playing it in July, you know, like, I had someone yesterday say, you don't play Christmas music before Thanksgiving because Thanksgiving needs its own holiday and you need to give it its season and everything fits in its proper season. I understand that, but some of you are not like that. You're playing Christmas music all the time. You're excited about it. You're watching all the movies. You've watched Miracle on 34th Street probably already. You've watched Elf. You've watched Die Hard. You've, you've gone through the whole list, and, and, and you, you're into that, and I, and I get that. And I, I, I used to really like Christmas, too. Growing up, uh, we would, at, at Christmas, I remember the traditions of, like, we would set out the cookies and milk for Santa Claus next to the fireplace, which is weird because we lived in Florida and we still had a fireplace. I don't know why, but we did. And so my parents were from Michigan. They probably thought we needed it or something. Um, but we, so we had a fireplace to set that out. And, and I remember the anticipation of that. And like, that was fun. Christmas is coming. This is exciting. Um, and as an adult, it's been maybe less fun and maybe until kids came along, and then, then I got to sort of experience the anticipation and the excitement of it all over again. It's like, oh, yeah, watch the kids get excited about this, and, th- and that, that's really fun. Um, and, I've, and I've mostly uh, enjoyed it until I started working in retail. Uh, I spent a couple years uh, with Starbucks, and um, I don't care what, what those cups look like. When you have to look at enough of them every day, uh, you, you, you kind of sucks the Christmas spirit out of you, you know? I mean, like, you could be all about some Christmas, but if you sling lattes for eight hours on Black Friday, uh, it, the Grinch will, will rise up in you, and your heart will grow two sizes too small after, you're all, after you come off of that shift. You're just like, I don't, I don't care about Christmas anymore. I, I can't hear one more, you know, I can't hear one more Bruce Springsteen, Santa Claus is coming to town. If I hear that again, I'm going to, you know, strangle someone. So um, I, I had a little bump there where I didn't like Christmas, but now I'm, I'm sort of back on, and, and I think um, I, I, I look forward to the season, and the whole Advent season, not just Christmas Day or Christmas Eve. I, I look forward to all the things that lead up to it, not the sales and the shopping, all that stuff, but really like the reason for the season, the, the celebration of the Christ Mass, Christmas, the, the, that we are celebrating Christ, that we're celebrating Jesus come to earth and, the, and, and, and that, entire, that entire narrative and what it means for the world. Like, I, I love that. I love that it's something I can count on, that as a family, we're going we're gonna, to um, take some time out in the season to focus on Advent and, and what God is, is doing and has done. In, in the world, and it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Now, the Christmas story, you, you know that. You've probably heard it before if you've been around a church at all, and maybe some of you are brand new to church and you don't know, but the Christmas story, as told by the Bible and Charlie Brown, is basically, you know, angels and shepherds, and there's wise men, and then there's like Joseph and Mary, and Jesus is born in a, in a, in a manger, and, and there's this whole story. Thing that goes around that, and while they're watching their fields out in the flock, their flocks out in the fields by night, like we know that whole thing, um, and I and I and I love that, and we'll get into some of that in the next six weeks. But really, what I want to do 
in this series called The Road to Christmas is give you kind of the backstory uh, that leads up to Jesus being born, that leads up to what we will celebrate together on, on Christmas Eve. Um, and, and so we're going to talk about the kind of the road that, that got you. Think of it as like the, the story behind the story or like the, you know, every character, every good character has a backstory. We want to get into, hey, people have been anticipating Jesus coming for thousands of years. What were they thinking? What was that about? And, and, and what were they looking forward to? And so we were going to look at that from different angles over the next six weeks leading up to Christmas. Um, and so today I want to start with a concept that shows up in the Old Testament um, that is, is one slice of this, one way of thinking about the Jesus backstory, and it is the concept of a Messiah, that people were waiting for a Messiah. Now, Messiah is not a word we use a lot. Uh, you might say someone has a Messiah complex, which means they want to be the Savior, but the word Messiah is this Old Testament word, a Hebrew word, and it means um, anointed one. So the idea of the anointed, the chosen, the Savior, that kind of idea, that's the Messiah. You have Messiah complex or you have Messiah-like stories that show up even in popular culture now. I would argue Harry Potter is a Messiah kind of story about this one, the chosen one who grows up and he dies and he comes back to life. Sorry if you haven't read that far in the books, but it's coming. Uh, dies because they've been out for like 30 years now. There's no excuse. Um, it dies. That's a Messiah. That's a Messiah story that they're telling. Um, if you go back to 1999, if you go back to The Matrix, uh, Neo the is Neo. Hey, all three letters of Neo spell one. It's the one. It's the chosen one. This the Savior who's going to die and come back to life and all that. Like that whole thing. You've got that same idea that shows up over and over. So the the concept of Messiah, this anointed one, this chosen one, um, it's been around for for thousands and thousands of years. It's this one who's going to come and save us. So in the Old Testament predating Jesus by about, the text we're going to look at predates Jesus by about a thousand years, uh, is, is in Psalm 110. I, I, I want to read this to you, and we're going to, we're going to jump into the, and, and just go through this psalm today. And this psalm is quoted in the New Testament several times, and it's really an important psalm in, in, in all of Scripture pointing to the Messiah, and, and scholars believe it, that, that that's what it's about. So Psalms, if you have a Bible and you open it up to the middle of your Bible, you're in the Psalms, um, and right fairly near the middle of that is Psalm 110, uh, and I want us to look at this uh, and um, look at, 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 at how God used this at, to kind of give us hints about Jesus who was to come. So Psalm 10, verse 1, this is written by King David in Israel. He says this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay, we have to stop already because there's things to explain in here. King David rules Israel in about 1000 BC. And at that time, there's nobody more powerful in all of Israel than the king. He's, he's a big deal. Um, and he says, the Lord said to my Lord. Okay, you got to wonder what he's talking about. If you're reading this in a Bible, in a paper Bible, not what's up on the screen, but if you're reading along in the Bible, what you, what you will probably notice is that the Lord the first verse there, uh, the first section of the verse, the Lord, uh, the word Lord is in all caps. So it, it would actually be a, a large L and then three smaller O-R-D, but they're all capital letters. So it's like this kind of weird ca all caps, but not quite shouting at you all caps thing. Um, that is what most Bibles do for the Hebrew word for Yahweh, the word I am, Yahweh. Uh, that is God's name. So when, when you see that, that typeset in your Bible, it's talking about God, the Father, the Creator of the universe, the Lord, the, uh, and more of the name of God, that idea. 
So when it says, the Lord said to my Lord, the second Lord in that, in that sentence, the Lord said to my Lord, is the word Adonai, which is more generally Lord, not a specific the, my God kind of thing. Um, Lord there would be something more like my ruler, master, the one I bow to, that kind of thing. And you can use that term not just for God, although sometimes used for God, but you can use it for other um, other, other things as well. Uh, and so when David says, the Lord said to my Lord, uh, you, you kind of have to wonder who he's talking about because he's talking about God, his father first, and then he says, God said to my Lord. Well, he's king. Who's he going to bow to? The king doesn't bow to anyone. Um, well, what most scholars believe is that this is a reference to, and he's speaking of the Messiah, the, the Savior who is to come, the, the, this chosen one. And what you're going to see in the rest of the psalm is basically this conversation between God the Father and the Messiah, who we will later see as Jesus, God's Son. So it's almost like this father-son conversation that goes on in Psalm 110 that David lays out for us. So let me just put it, with that context, let's jump back in. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of the youth of your youth will be yours. Um, okay, you see a couple things here. The Lord says, my Lord, so whoever this Lord is, he's talking about this Messiah, he's going to rule over the people. Uh, making enemies your footstool, that is a common language in the ancient world when you, like, as a ruler, you totally dominate some other group. It's like they were your enemies, you, you fought a battle over them, you won, and you made them your footstool. You, you rest your feet on them. That's how, that's how much more powerful you are than them. And he, and he says, he says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Well, the, to sit at someone's right hand, if you're the king and you have someone sitting at your right hand, that is a very high position of power that he's talking about. If you can say, hey, if you're going to sit here by the king, we are going to rule this thing together and you're going to have power with me. You're going to be a ruler with me. Um, and it says in verse 3 that your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Um, this is already foreshadowing that the kind of king, the kind of Messiah, the kind of savior, the kind of ruler, the kind of leader that we're talking about here is not your typical political leader. Political leaders will dominate. They will say, you must follow me or else it's my way or the highway, you know, convert or die, that kind of thing. And he's saying, no, when this king rules, when this, this anointed one comes, what he's going to do is rule in such a way that people are going to freely give themselves to him. This is a different thing. This isn't rule by force or an iron fist. This is people willingly saying, I'm in, and that's my king, and that's who I want, that's who I want to follow. So you see that foreshadowing. And then uh, listen to what it says in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the Lord has sworn, he will not change his mind. This is a sure thing that is coming. That's what the psalm is letting us know. This is definitely going to happen. God is not going to change his mind on this. And it describes this Messiah, this, this one who's coming, as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right, we need to do a little detour on Melchizedek here. Because uh, besides just being an odd name, you just can't like skip over that stuff and be like, yeah, yeah, whatever that is, and move on. Like, because it's actually an important part of of what he's laying out here about the Messiah. Melchizedek uh, is an odd dude who shows up in Scripture, um, and he, he kind of shows up in this one incident, and then is referenced several times throughout the Bible. 
And Melchizedek appears in Genesis 14, back in Genesis in the beginning of the story. So if, Psalms, if Psalm 110 is written in about 1,000 BC, this is another 1,000 plus years before that. Abraham is called by God, named Abram. God calls Abram in Genesis 12 and says, I want you to move from your land. Abram was living in modern-day Iraq, that kind of area, and I want you to move uh, to a land that I'm going to show you. And God calls Abram out of there to a land to the west, which is modern-day Israel, that space next to the Mediterranean Sea. God calls him and his family to, to move there and to, and to be his people and honor him. And, and, he, and out of Abraham, he's going to make this great nation, and he's going to have many descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And this, this whole thing's going on. So, so Abram settles near Israel in this area. Um, and, it, and in Genesis 14, there are other kings and rulers and leaders around, and the kings go to war with each other. There's this fight that breaks out between several different kings. They're all named. We'll get into it here in a second in Genesis 14. And Abraham, um, his family's kind of dragged into this as sort of a bystander. He's kind of middle of this. And he goes out and he, and he fights to get his family back and all that. And then after that battle happens, Melchizedek appears. Uh, Genesis 14. Uh, I, w- I want to read it to you so you can kind of see the, the context of why Melchizedek is brought up in Psalm 110 and then brought up again in the New Testament. Hang with me on this because I know you didn't wake up this morning going, I hope somebody explains Melchizedek to me. This is really the most important thing in my life right now. Um, I get that. Hold on. So, uh, Abraham, uh, Genesis 14, uh, we'll start with verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Kerdoleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. All right. So Melchizedek shows up into this story after Abram's gone and fought. And Melchizedek appears, and what do we see about him? Well, he's known as the king of Salem. King of Salem, Jerusalem, uh, possibly. Uh, Salem is the Jewish word shalom, which is peace. So you could call Melchizedek the king of peace. He shows up as the king of peace, and he pulls out a couple things. What does he bring? Bread and wine. If you're a Christian, your ears should perk up. You go, ah, wait a second. Bread and wine, that's a thing, right? It's communion. Jesus uses those elements at the Last Supper. Those are elements that are used in in the Passover. Uh, There's a lot of history behind bread and wine, tracing even back to here. And so uh, Jesus is going to use those things later. Melchizedek brings those things out, and it mentions when he brings them out that he is a priest of the Most High God. So we know he's the king of peace, king of uh, of Salem, and we also know he's a priest. He blesses Abraham, and, and, and offers him the, the, these words of blessings. And Abraham's response to Melchizedek is to give him a tenth of everything that he's got. It must have been a great blessing and a very motivational speech, right? Because Abraham's like, that was amazing. How much money can I give you? And he's like, I'll give you a tenth of all my money. And back then, it's going to be like cattle and oils and, and, and things like that, you know, maybe gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That comes later. I don't know. But he's going to give him a tenth of, of, of his stuff, um, and, and as, as a way of honoring Melchizedek, okay? So he recognizes in Melchizedek there's something powerful about, about these, these guys, um, about, about this guy. Uh, notice that Melchizedek has a dual role. Dual role. He is king and he is priest. Um, 
We'll, we'll come back to that in a second. He's both of those things. Now, some scholars, when they look at Melchizedek in the Old Testament, and they, they say, ah, Melchizedek actually was Jesus. This was Jesus showing up thousands of years before Jesus shows up. Maybe. He's, he, he is foreshadowing Jesus, though. He is foreshadowing something that's going to come up much, uh, much later. Uh, Psalm 110 starts, makes this reference to him as foreshadowing the Messiah. And Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, r- refers to Melchizedek again and, uh, and, and says, hey, um, th- this Melchizedek, th- this represents Jesus. Okay, so, so back to Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, the order of Melchizedek, like this, this lineage of Melchizedek. In the Jewish world, in the Jewish way of thinking, there's, you could be one of these things. You could be a priest, which means you had to be born after the order of the Levites. Uh, you had to be a Levite tribe person to be, a, to be a priest. You could be a priest or you could be a king. But you can't be both because they have very different functions in society. They, they do different things, um, and one person's not going to be both of these things. And when the Messiah is portrayed in Psalm 110, he's portrayed as this ruler who puts enemies at his footstool. He's portrayed as this king, and he's also portrayed as a priest. So the Messiah is some sort of priest king. That's who Jesus was. And Jesus actually points this, these things out about himself. In Jesus' day, there was a group called the Pharisees, and they were the religious leaders of, of that culture, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. There's a couple different groups that were kind of the ruling class of the Jews. And the Pharisees were some of the best religious people that you would know. If, if we met Pharisees today, um, maybe a modern-day version of that, although the Pharisees always get a bad rap in Scripture, uh, they would have been moral people who were really trying to find the Messiah. They were seeking God. So they come to Jesus. They recognize something's different about Jesus. They come to him, and they ask him about Psalm 110, actually. They ask him about this lineage question about the Messiah. Listen to how this goes in Matthew chapter 22. Start with verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, so Jesus asked this question first, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. All right, when you see, leave that up on the screen for a second. When you see the word Christ, understand this is not Jesus' last name. This is a title, and, it, and the New Testament is written in Greek, and Christ is the Greek for the Messiah. So we're talking about Messiah, that same concept. And so the Pharisees are gathered together, and Jesus goes to them and says, hey, the Messiah, you guys have been waiting for him. Who, what lineage do you think he's from? Whose son is he? And they said, he's the son of David. Okay? Uh, that makes sense. And the reason Jesus is asking this is that lineage is a really big deal in the ancient world. It, it really matters who your parents are. Um, that, that bloodline kind of stuff is, is, a, is a really big deal. Um, and, and, and so they answer that the, that, uh, that, that the Messiah is going to be, the Christ is going to be the son of David, which means he's going to be from this royal line. He's this king from this royal lineage of King David, one of the greatest people in all of their history. Um, and so Jesus responds to that by quoting to them Psalm 110. Look at verse 43 next. He said to them, How is it then that David, who wrote the Psalms, right, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his, 
uh, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Okay, to understand this, you have to know that to, to, to the Pharisees in the ancient world, you, you are not more impressive than your dad. I don't care how good you are. Your dad is where it's at. So there's this respect thing in the culture. And so Jesus knows this and asks them, well then, if, if the Savior, who's going to be this great ruler, is David's son, how's that going to work? Because David said, the Lord said to my Lord, David refers to this Messiah as his Lord. How is that even possible if he's also his, his son? No one's going to be greater than their, their father. And this confuses the Pharisees, and they walk away, and they're like, let's just not ask him any more questions. How about, how about that? Uh, it, it gets all weird when we start asking questions. Um, the Pharisees are religious guys. They're moral. They're the ones who are going to do the right thing. And they're trying to get this right. They're, they're waiting for this Messiah. And Jesus confounds them and, and just confuses them with his response. And, I, and let me give you several implications of this. And, and I know, and I, I made mention of this, you did not wake up this morning thinking about this. This was not, a, this was not like, I, I really hope the Messiah question is answered at church today. Because what we wake up thinking about is, how many days in are we? What's going on with the presidency? Did that happen? Um, how's my job this week? And did I get that report done? Um, you know, how, why are sales flat? Um, what did the governor just say? Uh, like, uh, you know, can I pay rent? How's food looking? Like, these are the things we worry about, right? But I think that this actually has some implications over, over some of the bigger picture of of those things, maybe not all the little specific little things, but I think there's some implications here, and I just want to give them to us here, and then we're done. Number one, the big picture is taken care of, so don't sweat the small stuff. I don't know if we always do a good job of putting context around our struggles. Like, people are like, oh, 2020 is the worst ever, and, and you know, I like history, so I'm like, I don't know, 1920 wasn't great. Uh, 1939 to 1945 looked rough. I don't know. Done. If, just look it up later. You know, 1968 looked pretty rough. Um, like, there's been some stuff, right, in the history, and depending on the country, you go to another country in the world, and they've got a different set of dates of how rough things were. So I don't know that we always do a good job of putting context to it. And some of that is because when you put context to it, you sound not very empathetic. If people are like oh, this, uh, you know, this just happened to me, this is the worst, and you're like, well, you don't have, you know, cancer, you still have a job, you, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you're right, technically, you're correct on those things, but nobody wants to hear it, right? Like, that, that's not helpful. But I still think there's value in thinking big picture context of your situation and of our situation, that the big picture has been taken care of by God, and so Honestly, everything else is, is small stuff. Um, our struggles are, are real. Yes, we have bills that to pay. We have relationships. There's not enough money at the end of the day. And this is, but the big questions about where is this all headed? What are we doing here? What happens when we die? Because we all are definitely going to die. What happens then? Like what the, the big picture of the trajectory of our lives, that stuff has been taken care of. This is one of the good things about the Messiah coming to earth, the Savior coming, he has come to make things 
right. We learn this from Psalm 110, that God sent a Savior to the world to set things right. In fact, let me finish Psalm 110. Listen to the way it ends. The Lord is at your right hand. This is verse 5. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. That's a nice verse. That's not one you're ever going to see on a coffee cup. He will, he's going to put corpses in the nations. You're like, oh, cool. Thank you. That sounds great. Um, but, but, but here's what we should learn from that. The Messiah, when he comes, will deal justly with the world. There is, and this should be non-controversial, this should be so blatantly obvious to every single person hearing my words right now, there is great evil in the world. There's great evil in the world. And, and, and don't give me that it's, well, it's just ignorance. It's just some bad decisions, some bad choices, it's some oops, some whoops. I mean, a couple errors here, a couple mistakes are made. Mistakes were made. In the history of the world and all civilizations, Rwanda was not mistakes were made. There's great evil in the world. The Holocaust is not mistakes were made. There's great evil in the world. No question. And God sees it. And one of the things we learn from Psalm 110 is he sees it and he's going to set it right. He's going to deal justly with the world. And when you read about corpses, you're like, dang, why does it always get so intense in the Old Testament? God be, God be just striking fools down left and right. That sounds, sounds awful. Until you recognize that there are some fools in the world and there are some evil actors and God sees that too and he's not sitting back going like, oh well, nothing I can do about it. Oh yeah, they're kind of bad, but you know, we all have that crazy uncle. Or No, God's like, I'm going to deal justly with the world and he's, and he's serious about it. And I know that's uncomfortable, but we have to recognize it. And, and actually it should be to some level, it should be comforting that God sees and will deal with it. God makes this move of reconciliation by sending his Messiah who will deal with evil. And this means that the big stuff is taking, a, is taking care of. The big questions are, are, are dealt with. God is not silent. He even sees you. He sees the evil that was done to you. He sees the evil surrounding you, and he sees what's going on in your heart. And, and, he, and he moves towards you, and he loves you, and he, and he seeks relationship with you. And this means that a lot of our stuff is ultimately small stuff. We fret and worry about the things, and we probably fret and worry too much to a, to a sinful level. But what, one of the things we learn from this Messiah idea is that we have a Savior, and He has come, and that you ultimately can be reconciled to God and be okay with the big things in life. So that's number one. Number two is this. Jesus is both priest and king. This is a unique spot, and it's actually something we all need. Jesus is the king. He's the king of kings. That's a term thrown around about him, which means he has a kingdom. He, he rules over a group of people. If you think about what a king does, they have a kingdom. They lead the kingdom. They, they provide protection. They provide guidance. They serve, um, in some way, they serve the, 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 the large kingdom uh, by, by how they provide for them. Um, they keep them safe. They unify the people in their kingdom around a particular vision. 
That's what kings do. And this is hard for us to think about in culture because we don't do kings in this country. We, we started our country by saying we're not doing kings. And so uh, it gets a little hard for us to think about it. And so what we do is presidents and we remove them you know, every four to eight years. So we just kind of like keep rotating. Well, now this guy's in charge and this person's in charge and this person's just like, that's what we do. So the idea of like the sovereign ruler king who over loves the people and they, they pledge their loyalty and fealty to the king, like we don't do that. Um, and so it can be a little hard for us to get our heads around. But, but uh, there's actually a, a, a need for that to unite under what Jesus brings as king. His vision for flourishing is not making any particular country great again. That's not what Jesus ever came to do or what he's about. His vision for flourishing is for humanity, that we would all unite under him in the kingdom of God, and, and we, would, we would think big picture there. Um, and I think that's actually very important for us to remember in this time where we have... Um, a close and contested election. Christians need to remember that we have a king. We don't need anyone to be that for us. We're not trying to elect one. We, now, sure, when you talk about political le- elections in our country, everybody has their preferences. Everybody's like, well, I want this person to win. I don't want this person to win. This person will be better than this person. Like, I get that. Um, but we don't, we don't need to elect someone to, to provide for us. We have a king. And the other function of Jesus is as a high priest. A priest is a mediator between God and man. In the ancient Israelites, you had a priest from the tribe of Levi who would make sacrifices. They would offer up the blood of animal goats and doves and various things. They would slaughter these animals to atone for, to cover your sins. We'll talk about that more next week. It'll be bloody and gross. Um, we... we we, 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 that's how they did that in the ancient world, that, that there was this mediator between you and God, and it was this priest who would, who would meet with God once a year in the, in the holy place, that kind of thing. Um, and modern day, your concept of priest, of someone between you and God, if you grew up Catholic, you probably have some concept of it. Oh, the priest, that's the guy up there who does the bread and the wine and blesses it, and um, that's the person who marries and buries people. That's the um, person who I tell my sins to, and then they tell God about about my sins, like it's this intermediary, it's this person between you and God. Um, and, and what the scripture tells us is, especially the book of Hebrews really hammers this point home, is that no, Jesus is that now. He's the mediator between us and God. Um, he has made a way for us to be right with the Lord, uh, with, with our heavenly Father. And he, he speaks on our behalf. When we stand before God in judgment one day, Jesus sits at his right hand and Jesus will say, oh no, she's with me. Oh, no, he's with me. He's one of mine. Uh, he, he speaks on our behalf when we cannot speak in standing before God. So here's my question, and maybe you did, I'm, I'm sure you didn't wake up thinking this this morning, but here's my question. What do you need most right now in 2020? Do you need Jesus to be king and lead, or do you need Jesus to be priest and offer comfort and mediation between, between you and God? Um, I, I think I've needed both in 2020. Uh, this is the ultimate year for people to make plans and for God to laugh at our plans. I mean, how many churches, I even talked to a church this week that did it, how many churches this year started a sermon series back in January called 2020 Vision? Like, here's what, here's what God's going to do in 2020. <laughs> Not so much. Um, it's a little different, right? Uh, and, and I think we all have felt that this year. Our inner control freak has taken a beating, no question, in, in 2020. Um, 
And I just wonder if our lack of faith in God has really come front and center and risen to the top in the midst of all this. I've had to face that in myself. I don't know what God's up to right now. I don't. But I believe he's up to something. And in the near term, I'm not sure how it's all going to work out. But ultimately, I believe it will work out. And I need Jesus to be king because we cannot elect enough good leaders because there just aren't enough of them. That's just not going to work. I need Jesus to be king and follow him because all the leaders we elect are going to be very broken and very flawed. And I need a priest because nobody stands before God. Anyone who tried to stand before God in the scripture, it went very badly for them. Moses couldn't, couldn't handle the glory of God. Isaiah says, to, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips as soon as he sees God. Uh, Job tries to, tries to you know, muscle up to God a little bit. And the last four chapters of the book of Job, God asked Job like 88 questions. Like, who do you think you are? And were you there when I made the earth? And you know that kind of thing. And Job understands very quickly oh, I'm actually not a big deal. Like, it doesn't go well for anyone who wants to, to get big with God and, and, and think there's something. And so we are all in need of someone that we are, in a sense, cool by association. We are all in need of someone who can stand before God. And that's what we have in our Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. Um, he stands with us. So he's priest and king. And then finally this, um, what I get out of this is that we have an imperative we have a, a call, a, a mission to share the good news. Number three, to share the good news. The Messiah has come. This is good news for the world. This is why we talk about Christmas, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. It's not just a song. It's not just a greeting card. It is a, a concept that we get from Scripture that when the Messiah comes, the Savior has come. This is actually good news. And it's not just good news for one particular slice of one class of people in one time in history. This is not middle-class Jesus for middle America. This is good news for all tongues, tribes, and nations all over the world in all of history. This is powerful that God has made things right. This is good news because God answers the death question for us, which means all of our failures are not final. All of, all of the things that, that you know, or, oh, this, this could be bad and I could die and whatever, like there's something beyond the grave. Like Jesus has answered those big questions for us. And this is incredibly good news. It's good news for all. And so I want to challenge you to take an action step here in the next six weeks. Find one person, maybe it's more than one, but at least one. Find one person that you know that is not connected to the good news of Jesus. They don't care. They might care, but they're, they're distracted by a lot of other things. They got a lot going on. They're frustrated, broken, disappointed, bad, flawed, bored, um, cynical. Find one person and commit to sharing the good news about what Christmas really is with them. Say, yeah, I know. I love mistletoe and eggnog and Woohoo, you know, Home Alone, uh, let's watch it. You know, you'll shoot your eye out, kid, we can do that. Like, I love all that stuff. But actually, what I love about Christmas is this it's the Christ Mass, it's the Savior of the world that makes things right and that has changed my life and has calmed how anxious I can be. Share that. We're going to be in here on Christmas Eve. Um, we're going to do one service in this room, and I just want to invite you to be here and to bring somebody who needs to hear it, um, to hear the good news, uh, because it is good news, and, um, and it's news that a, a, 
a lost and hungry and broken and frustrated world needs to hear. Let's pray. God, I thank you for sending the Messiah to us, the Savior who uh, was foreshadowed for thousands of years, who many people waited in expectation, this this long-awaited one who came. God, um, help us to live in that reality that he has come and that he will come again and that that, uh, he will collect his people. God, I thank you for the opportunity to be his people, that we can uh, enter into relationship with him, um, we can be baptized into you, we can enter through faith. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.